Welcome to Take It From Us with host Kent Johns. Real people, real voices, real lives. Discussing mental health, addiction and disability in the community. Your weekly window to the real world. Welcome to Take It From Us. Take it from us. Welcome into the program. Yeah, hope you've had a tremendous week and you're looking after yourself and you're looking after your loved ones and and those close to you. Please leave us a comment, uh, facebook.com, get to the take it from us tile on. Have enjoyed the comments that you've been sending us and, and just leaving some thoughts here and there. Much appreciated. Today, we thought we would talk about food. Yeah. Who doesn't love food? Who doesn't love good food? Hands up. We all put our hands up. And, of course, we, we need to be eating well to be healthy. Now, one of the key functions for me as a health coach, that's what I do during the week. I help people get healthier and, and change their behavior and, and make better decisions for themselves. A lot of the time, we actually start with food. And I've got this little six-word kind of mantra, which is change your eating, change your life. It worked for me a number of years ago uh, when I was severely down on energy. Uh, was probably close to burnout. I, I made a decision to change the food that I was eating, and man, did it make an, an enormous difference, both in terms of a little bit of weight loss, but more importantly, just brain function. The brain fog started to disappear when I took myself to a dietitian, and I greatly reduced the amount of sugar that I was eating and the amount of processed food that I was eating. And now, as a health coach, I can help people make a few changes themselves, and the results are quite astounding, really astonishing, and really encouraging. That's the great thing. It's much easier to turn around your health based on some food changes than it was to get to a point where you know that you needed to make the changes. So it's a topic that's really close to me because, A, I've seen it up close, but also I do believe that collectively in our community, our society at large, at some point there has to be a reckoning with food and particularly processed food. So that's why today on the program, we take a deep dive into food and to brain health. Uh, Shortly, we'll hear from uh, Jess Wharton, who was a nutritionist with her own story to tell. Uh, She suffered from ulcerated colitis a few years ago. She had a stroke when she was only 29 years of age. Now she's a clinical nutritionist, and she helps people every day in changing what they're eating and making sure that the brain is getting enough of the good stuff to function properly. Um, She's got a fascinating story. So really looking forward to hearing what Jess has to say on our program. Uh, But first up, this is is a bit of a privilege because uh, we have on a lady who is a professor of psychology at the University of Canterbury. Her name is Julia Rutledge. Um, and she's written a great book, by the way. And this is the reason why we wanted to get her on our program is because of her co-authored book called The Better Brain, which came out a short time ago. And it's a tremendous book. I would highly recommend this to anybody who, who just wants to read about good food and good nutrition and the benefits that multivitamins and minerals can have on all sorts of things from depression to ADHD and everything in between and just basically what can happen to your mood if you decide to eat well. So we've got Julia on the program and it's a great pleasure to have her on. As I say, she's the Professor of Psychology at the Canterbury University and the co-author of the book, The Better Brain. Julia, it's lovely to have you on our program today. Let's get to the nub of it straight away. What is the link between food and brain health? 
that's a, a big, I mean, I could talk for an hour on that one alone. So uh, what is the link between our food and our, our mental health? Mm. So, um, I mean, this is something that I, I, to be honest, I think people have known for a long time that we need to eat well, not just for our physical health and for our mental health. But I think what happened is that we've been kind of led astray over the last 50 years. And we've been led astray by the promise of amazing medications that are supposed to be able to treat, cure mental health problems. Um, we've been led astray potentially by this, you know, the, the rising number of people who are offering uh, counseling, which is not a you know, it's not a bad thing, but that it has led us down the route of thinking that that's an, a way of, of sorting out our mental health issues. And in all of those pursuits, what I think has been ended up being left behind and neglected is the food environment and how important it is for our brain health. And then you couple that, all of these changes that have been happening in our society, and you couple that with the really radical change in our food environment over a very, very short period of time, like not even a hundred years, it might go back to, you know, post-World War II, where we've had the introduction of really highly ultra-processed foods into our diet. That has really led us to get that what we're eating affects our brain health. So we've had this almost this natural social experiment that has happened and not it's, you know, we, we've recognized now that it's led to a whole bunch of chronic health issues like obesity and diabetes and cardiovascular problems. But the other thing that we're now putting onto the map is just how important it is for brain health. So does that answer your mm. sort of as a starting point to answer your question? But ultimately, what we've learned is that we need to really pay attention to the nutrients and particularly from my perspective is the micronutrients that are contained within real whole foods that are simply do not, um, are not in sufficient quantities in the ultra processed foods to really do what they need to do in the brain. So how do we know that we are feeding our brains properly? How do we know? Um, well, I mean, I think, well, I think the best place to start with is just how are you feeling is to do a thermometer of, you know, do you, do you, are you, is your energy okay? Um, are your moods stable or do you snap really easily at, you know, irritants that are in your environment? Are you finding that you're anxious, struggling with coping, um, really stressed by anything that comes your way? I think those are good in indicators that your health, your mental health is suffering. And so that to me would be a good indicator to at least start thinking, is the food that I'm eating right now um, providing my brain with what it needs in order to cope with what's going on? And so one way that you can do that and something that I've been experimenting with on, I have a, an online course and it's been running now for over a year. And one of the things that we get people to do is do a food diary, really super simple. And it doesn't have to be complicated. You don't have to look up all the macronutrients and micronutrient content of the food. Just taking a simple food diary of the foods that you're eating and see, and then also just taking note of your overall well-being. And in doing so, um, for a lot of people who have been uh, sort of reading their posts on the on the online course, they're remarking that, wow, I'm starting to recognize that there are some patterns here that when I eat, you know, some ultra processed type foods, that seems to correlate at least, you know, it's not necessarily causality, but it seems to associate with having, you know, negative moods or not feeling great or just feeling lethargic or foggy, slowed, um, 
And so those can be really good clues for people that their, their diet may not be optimal to meet the needs of their brain. And of course, what happens is on those days when we're feeling rubbish and we have low mood and, and we're yeah. anxious or a little depressed about how things are going, what are the foods that we reach for a lot of the time? Well, it's it's well, the ultra processed yeah. rubbish, isn't it? Exactly. Which is then, is that, are we, have we got ourselves into a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy at this point? Uh, exactly. And, mm. um, and we don't, I guess for some people, they might not even know any better. They just know that those foods seem to uh, maybe bring them up temporarily. And so what they then need to focus in on is, well, does it bring you up temporarily and then you drop again and crash or does it bring you up permanently? And I'm suspecting that most people who do reach for those comfort foods, the high carb type foods, your sugary foods, your muffins, your pastries, your donuts, um, those, what would be sort of classified as your com- those comfort foods. And, you know, that's a terrible thing that they've been called comfort foods because it actually makes them sound like they're good for you. But um, is to just, you know, the question is to say, well, does it, do I ultimately end up feeling a lot better as a consequence of eating these foods? And we've kind of been trained to think we need those foods, even with the label of it. And what I would encourage people to start reflecting on is whether or not that's really the best choices to be feeding your brain, in particular at times when you're feeling really crappy. So um, we've done research after some fairly major traumas in Christchurch um, overseas in, in a flood, and then again in Christchurch after the mosque shooting that we found that giving people extra nutrients at a time when you are feeling really stressed and you're feeling really anxious and traumatized by what's happening in the environment around you, that that can be really um, be helpful and support you to be more resilient when faced with these ongoing issues in your environment. And let's face it, we all have them, right? No one is oblivious to this or immune to it. And, and that's been highlighted most graphically, hasn't it, over the last couple of years? And yeah. do you get the sense that for, for for a lot of us, with the stress and the worry of COVID, that we are reaching more and more for those comfort foods? We're reaching more for alcohol as coping mechanisms. Well, I think the the data are saying that there there have mm. been studies that have looked at dietary patterns during lockdown and have looked to see whether or not that's associated with mental health issues. So there were I saw some of those types of publications pretty on early on in the pandemic, highlighting that your diet can be um, associated with your mental health and that if you changed your diet during the lockdown, for example, that and to to include more of those ultra processed foods, then that was identified as being detrimental to your mental health. So that's pretty well documented uh, in the pandemic over the last couple of years that we do need to pay attention to the diet, but that people have been making some food choices that have not necessarily been good for them in terms of overall coping. What success have you seen from working with people with depression when it comes to multi-nutrients? Um, what success have we seen? Uh, well, we've seen, you know, I've been doing clinical trials for 15 years and I've seen, uh, not just depression, but many mental health problems, uh, completely overturned with just multinutrients. And by multinutrients, uh, from my perspective, I mean giving people vitamins and minerals in a pill form. It's not that I think that everyone needs to take pills and, and take their nutrients in that way, but that's, it's a proof of principle that, 
uh, our research shows that the giving people additional nutrients seems to have a positive effect on mental health. So in turn, it's proof principle that our food environment is not adequate for adequately supplying the brain with what it needs based on on that research. So in terms of what we've seen, we haven't seen. You know, for, I do want you know listeners to know that this doesn't this approach. It's a it's kind of like a shotgun approach in a way. It's giving the same nutrients at similar doses to people who have various different psychiatric problems and seeing, you know, what kind of response do we get. And um, there are people, and it's about 20% in our clinical trials who don't respond at all and who don't show any benefit whatsoever. Fortunately, we don't seem to make people worse. Um, but there are there is this group of people who don't seem to respond, and whether or not they needed longer or there was gut health issues that we weren't able to address within the confines of a research trial, or there were environmental things that kept exacerbating their problems such that even if you turn around the food environment and the nutritional environment, that might not be enough. So there'll be lots of other reasons why that might happen. But we see about 50% where we see a really substantial, solid, robust uh, benefit of the nutrients. And I see that that percentage just seems to go across all the trials. Mm. And then there's 30% where we see some benefit, but not full remission of symptoms. So that 50% are people who, yeah, they might still have some symptoms, but they are definitely in a way better place than they were when they first started the nutrient uh, treatment. And so in terms of uh, changes, I mean, we've seen things like, um, you know, uh, depression completely in remission. So people who came in with what we call major depressive disorder, uh, no longer meeting criteria for that and being in full full remission uh, for that condition. That can happen over time. Um but uh, the, some many people that we see are often ones who have tried lots of other treatments, and so they're less likely to respond to the placebo effect as much as people who are naive to uh, a treatment for mental health issues who are tend to do better in their first go with a treatment, if that makes sense, I hope. Mm. Um, when you're treating people who have been on multiple different medications in the past and then they're trying to nutrients, they're kind of, you know, oh, well, I'll give it a go, but I don't have any expectations that this is going to really necessarily help me in any way. So they, you're less likely to sort of induce the placebo effect in that, in that kind of population. Um, and we've seen people who, uh, so who um, you know, they might have come in with panic attacks and they're finding they're better able to cope with those and that they're not happiness, happening as frequently. But I would say the biggest benefit that we see based on our research is is the uh, regulation of just overall mood. So I wouldn't like to classify that as depression per se. It's just irritability and it's... Um, and it's just that the, the moods can go from like zero to a hundred instantaneously. So that might be anger. It might be, you know, irritability. It might be aggression. It's just, and it doesn't actually, it could be anything. It could be anxiety that it just seems to get triggered really quickly and, and feels very much out of the control of the individual. We see that that, that kind of dysregulation of emotions seems to benefit a lot from the, the micronutrient approach. And as you point out in your book, our brains, the, the, they just are the huge consumers of energy and, and yeah. nutrients. Is it somewhere between 20 to 40%? So That's right. I, I guess our takeaway should be if you feed your body good stuff, you're feeding your brain good stuff. Therefore, you are great chances of improving your mood. You got it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So it would, it's, it's where I would start first um, is that I would start with, 
with food first. Even though all I've done is research on supplements, I still, I feel really confident about saying that. And that's because of the population data that says, you know, many of the calories that our people are consuming these days, and this will be true in New Zealand, although the data that I've been able to track down is mostly from overseas, but over 50% of the calories people are consuming are coming from ultra-processed foods. So that's why I say, and in the book, we, we talk about how you've really got to do food first because uh, we used to have this belief, at least when I started doing this this research back in, you know, 2005, 2006, I... I was like, yeah, most people have a, a, a good diet and it's always, you know, just have a good diet and you'll be fine. And you kind of think, well, obviously the diet that has been recommended and is sold to me in supermarkets must be a good diet. And so therefore there's this assumption that most people have a good diet. And so I, through the, you know, the better understanding why it was that we were getting the effects that we were getting, we had to go back to the basics and go back to the the food and say, why is it? when giving people just extra nutrients that really they should be get out, be able to get out of their diet, why is it we're seeing these benefits? And that's when we start to say, okay, there's something wrong with our food supply in terms of food choices. But the second thing, and we talk about it in the book, the other, the other big elephant in the room is that our... Um, you know, even when you're eating real whole foods, there's, you know, there are challenges to our, the, the crops in terms of how we grow them and, and the nutrient density of our food is a consequence of not replenishing the soils adequately. Um, and we use glyphosate on our, on, on our crops as desiccants in New Zealand overseas. They use it for us, for other purposes as well. But, um, you know, those, those, uh, things that we do to try to make the harvesting an easier process have got side effects. And the side effects are that we're, you know, we're growing plants for high yield, but not, and, and for good transportation. But that means that there's less time for the nutrients to come out of the, you know, be have taken out of, or particularly the minerals have taken out of the soil. So there's, there, there's a lot of compromises that are happening in, in, in our growing of food, even if it's healthy food. So I guess that's what I'm saying is that it's not just about some of the food choices, but it's also that even when you make really, really good choices, we're, we're, la- we're having to face the fact that our food is not as nourishing as it used to be. Take it from us. We are talking with Julia Rutledge today. So, Julia, this approach that you have taken now for a long time with dealing with, with mental distress and mental disorders appears to be quite different than the standard medical model. Yes. How, how has your research been received, and are you optimistic that people are listening? Oh, goodness. That's a loaded question. <laughs> Um, well, um, how are we being received? I mean, I think on good days, I might think, oh yeah, we're being really received well. And there's a lot of people out there who are really interested in what we're doing for sure. And I know that I get, you know, I've had, um, you know, I've had an amazing number of people watch my TEDx talk, which is truly remarkable given it was, you know, it was, it was 
done here in Christchurch in 2014, and it's gone. It's almost at three million views. So clearly, there's an interest. Um, clearly, there are consumers out there who are looking for other solutions. So I know that, and I know that it's been really, really well received by people who have struggled with mental health issues who are looking for a new solution. Has it been well received by medical community? I'd say, well, it depends. There are some who are completely into lifestyle medicine and get and get this, and they are incredibly supportive and amazing champions of this work. But I would say they're not the majority of of health practitioners out there. We know that. And so has it been taken up by mainstream? Of course not. No, it's not. And if you were to go see your doctor and the likelihood of them saying anything about nutrients would probably be fairly small. It does happen. And when it happens, I'm like, oh my God, that's so exciting. Um, But it's very, very rare. So I'd say, yeah, there are so many people who are tuned into it. They are there. They are great believers and, and, and get that this is important, but we have a long way to go. But I sometimes I think, well, maybe mainstream medicine is always going to be the last one to kind of change its ways. It's a Titanic and it's got, you know, it's a, it's a, they've got their ways of doing things and I'm coming along and I'm trying to disrupt it. And I'm trying to say, well, actually let's think about these problems differently. And we've got people who are, are trained to uh, give out medicines and we have people who are trained to give psychotherapy. And so to suddenly say, well, let's do that differently. And we've got no one who's trained to use nutrients for the treatment of mental health issues. You why it's, it's a very, very difficult uh, to change the course of what happens in your public health care system. But nonetheless, one of your very strong recommendations would be for people in the medical fraternity to learn yeah. more and to be taught about nutrition yeah. and exactly. how it affects our brains. Absolutely. And I have given talks to medical people. I have one at the end of the month, which is for child psychiatrists. And the fact that I was invited to speak to the, to a group of child psychi- or child psychiatry trainees, um, is, is positive and in the right direction. So I think that maybe that it, sometimes that there's, there's a, there's a saying, I can't remember what it is. It's something about how, you know, it takes, it's like something about the deaths of, 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 <laughs> of the older generation in order for things to change. There's something like that. It, it, yeah. it's change happens with, 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 I, yeah, sorry, I can't remember. No, no, no you're basically on, it's like change happens when older people die. So when older uh, ideas yeah. die out, there's room yeah. for new ideas to come in. Yeah, exactly. And so it's a terrible thing to say because very, um, you know, mm. very experienced people who totally get it and who would classify in that older age group. But, uh, you know, I've seen one thing that's been really encouraging in the in the UK, there have been some medical doctors, really young people who have just finishing, finished medical school. They call, they they put together NutriTank, and I don't know if you've come across that, but it's they their mandate is to go and educate doctors about nutrition and how important it is for them to get better education on that. So the fact that you've got these young medical doctors going, we didn't get an adequate uh, education on nutrition, so we want to change how this is, and we want to make sure it gets into the curriculum. That is so fantastic. And so is that happening here in New Zealand? Not that I'm necessarily a way to aware of on a sort of wide widespread level 
but maybe the fact that I've been asked to do these small little seminars is going in the right direction and that they'll hopefully be convinced enough to tell other people and then tell other people. And so, it, mm. you know, I've, I've done some, I've certainly done talks for DHBs all around New Zealand. So maybe things will change. I can only and- hope. Also, you take issue with kind of the philosophy that we have at the moment around partial improvement. And you mention ex- the, the phrase expect recovery. You buy into that philosophy. Uh, yeah. Expect recovery. Mm. What does that look like? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's just pointing to this idea. I mean, not an idea, um, experience of so many people that they take antidepressants and I'll meet them. And I've seen them in my clinical practice for the last 25 years where they come in and they might be there's They're there to, to receive psychotherapy. They're inevitably on a medication and they're still depressed. So they are still, they still meet the criteria for the condition for which they're taking the medication. And so I think that's what you're talking, you're asking me about Mm. is that there are the countless people out there who are on a treatment, a medication for their psychiatric problem, and they still have it. And you're like, how is this acceptable that you, that you're taking something that hasn't substantially had an effect on your overall mental health and yet we see this as okay practice and it's like if you were to go you know if you were to have a an infection or (laughs) no let's not go there (laughs) sorry i'm not going there um if you were to have a broken leg and sorry, sorry, it's just that right now we all people have COVID sure. and they're they're being given a treatment for it. You, what you're saying <laughs> is, if we if we had an ailment, we would expect to have it fixed for us. We would get right. We would get back to a state of normalcy. Exactly. So if you right. had a broken leg, then and you went and you had it treated, and you still had a broken leg, personally, I would be a little bit disgruntled. Um, but if we have, you know, it's something about mental health problems that you get treated and then you still don't go better. And I think people then think to themselves, well, then I must be really bad because even these treatments aren't helping me. And so then there's a lot of self-blame or guilt or the, you know, it sort of turns inward, inward rather than questioning the, te- the treatment that they've received. And that to me just seems, it just seems wrong that we've, we think that that's an okay place for us to be that you get something that doesn't actually adequately address the problem that it's supposed to solve. So I've done research, I've been involved in research where we've looked at long-term outcomes of people who are on medications and it's, and it's not great. Like the, I can't remember, I remember we put it in the, some statistics in the book, but um, you know, m- many of the people were still struggling with the problem for which they were being treated. We were looking at it from a different perspective. We were interested in looking at uh, genetics and side effects associated with medications. But the bottom line was that these people were still struggling. And so that's what it is. It's just like, why is, why, why can't we um, aspire higher? Why can't we go, you know, have a greater expectation of what should happen when you treat someone? And to me, that is remission. It's the, the symptoms aren't there anymore, which is why I give you those statistics the way I did. I said 20% of people don't respond. So I'm giving you the cut, the breakdown of how well you're likely to be over, you know, over long term. In fact, long term people continue to do better, although we don't see that as much with medications. 
Yeah, that's quite an uplifting sort of a track, isn't it? That's Manic Monday by the Bangles from 1986. Every time I hear that song, I think of a mate of mine who's a chief executive of an insurance company. He front loads his week. And what I mean by that is he throws in all of the jobs that he doesn't like in on a Monday. So he just loads up with meetings, anything that he thinks might annoy him, any of those jobs that he doesn't want to wait and think, oh, no, I've got to wait and do this on Thursday or Friday. No, he does it all on a Monday. And I think that's kind of quite smart. It works for him. So he gets rid of all of the stuff that he doesn't want to do early in the week. I don't know what he does on a Thursday or a Friday, but apparently it's not those jobs that he's been thinking bad things about. So it's working for him. He has a busy Monday, and then he moves on and probably puts his feet up for the rest of it. There you go. Uh, Let's talk more about food and mental health. Uh, We've got Jess Wharton on the program. She's a nutritionist from Key Nutrition in Auckland, and she specialises in gut and brain health, and she's got her own personal story to tell us on the program as well. Jess, thanks so much for your time. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, very well indeed. We just had a a really interesting discussion with with Professor Julia Rutledge from the University of Canterbury about her book, The Better Brain, and just the sheer importance of vitamins and minerals and nutrients on the brain and how we can change our mood through food. Is that your experience? Yes, absolutely. It really is. You know, I I truly believe it. I've um, I've got Julia's book. and you know, I've 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 had some uh, personal lectures from Julia, which has been you know a great honour. She's an incredible woman, so I feel very lucky. And uh, absolutely, you know, I've got my own story of um, what brought me into nutrition, and that is, um, you know, I, I did struggle with a, a, a bit of mental health stuff at, a, at a, quite a young age, actually. Um, and so. Yeah, I noticed, yeah, I definitely noticed eating differently makes and pretty quickly makes a difference for sure, yeah. You do have a really interesting story as to how you've come about to being now a nutritionist and helping others with what they eat. Tell us tell us your background. Yeah, so I guess um, my, my background is, you know, diverse. When we talk to mental health, you know, like anxiety, um, depression, um, and all other things, you know, but particularly, you know, myself suffering from anxiety. I've, I've been in a place of debilitating anxiety. My background came from I, I grew up in quite a, a violent um, home and um, was, you know, through I had no choice but to leave by 13 um, to escape basically the abuse Um and, and sort of took care of myself from 13. And, um, you know, that involved um, noodles and <laughs> a lot of junk food, like a lot of junk food, a lot of processed food, um, and in and out of a lot of just uh, erratic mood in that in those mm-hmm. ages. But then by the time I got to my mid-20s, I got uh, ulcerative colitis, which is an inflammatory bowel disease. And so I began to malabsorb nutrients and not really get nutrients very well. Um, and I noticed that um, with that, I every time my gut would flare up and I wouldn't be getting the nutrients, my mind, I would slip back into um, mild depression but, but chronic anxiety mm. to a place where I, for a couple of years, I couldn't even leave my home. I was just, it was awful, you know. It was just, it felt like it would never end. Um, and then I thought, um, 
yeah, I, I have to study. I have to study. So I went back and I studied um, and changed my gut. So I, I sort of healed my gut, um, which meant I was absorbing nutrients. I started having, um, you know, on top of a very healthy diet, my um, basically a broad spectrum multivitamin that's bioavailable and got it in me every day. And I just noticed a flip of mood. I mean, my gut got better and my mood, you know, improved. Just, I'm just so much more stable, like always. And I see it clinically often too. I see it so often clinically. People come in and they're just mal, they're just malnourished. They're mm. eating a lot but not getting the nutrients. The, mm. It's just poor nutrients. And and so when you put some in, and we, I, I mean, ultimately we should be getting it all through our diet, but sometimes we just can't. And when we add that whole spectrum of um, vitamins and minerals, you just watch mm. people's worlds change. Mm. And it happens. You know, it's not with mental health. Look, this is, I, I'm sure maybe Julia might have, said this as well, but mental health is not just diet. We can't just say, look, you know, diet's the problem because there's so many factors in mental health. Mm-hmm. But boy, does diet make a huge difference. It gives you that resilience to cope with whatever. And that's what I've noticed. My life hasn't gotten mm-hmm. any easier. I've got kids busy, you know. it's um, I've been through, um, you know, I had a brain injury uh, in my early 20s as well, had a stroke. And so just dealing with um, information is a stress ongoing. And I just don't have that. I don't suffer from mm. I just stay well nourished and I just function so much better. And I see it clinically too. So the, the people, the clients in our community who are coming to see you who are malnourished of obviously loading up on a lot of ultra processed food. I'm sure sugar is, is quite, quite the culprit in there. How do you get them to think about their food philosophy and making better lifestyle choices so that they are actually eating healthier? How do you get them to change? Yeah, that's a great question. Like, um, sadly, people don't often come when they're feeling semi-okay. They come when they're at a place where they really, by the time they get, like, by the time I see a lot of people, they, like, they want to change. And so that has to be a first step that they have to want to make that effort, which is really difficult. Um, but how do we make the change? It's just small little steps. And what I say to some people is if they're going, I don't have that emotional or even, you know, when you're debilitated with anxiety, some people, and I've been in this this situation where you can't leave the bed because you are crippled with anxiety. Mm-hmm. You can't get into you know, the kitchen and chop up this glorious salad, organic salad, like it's not realistic. And that's where, uh, you know, I'm not saying a multivitamin is a fix-all, but that's where a, a multi, a pill, a, a multivitamin that has all the minerals, you know, there's there's, there's various other things, but, but just start there if you're in that deeper mm. place. Just, just get something in you. Um and then slowly people will lift a little bit. It's not just, uh, it's vitamin D as well, so sunshine. Mm. So just, I'd say to people, try and just get out. Just if you can, just just mm-hmm. get a little bit of sun, take a multivitamin, let's let's try from there. Now let's 
So getting people drinking more water is huge and electrolytes is huge. So little steps for people who are struggling because, you know, if you know, but for myself, I know when I was suffering with debilitating anxiety um, and just depression, that inability Mm. to want to get up and move and do stuff, including taking care of myself, is so low. You don't have that motivation to do it. So it's, for some people, it's real. It's just about those baby steps. And as you just get that little bit better, it's like, okay, now that we've got there, how about can we, instead of having your, um, you know, maybe just a plain piece of white with jam, which is just sugar going into the body, which is pro-inflammatory, you know, maybe can we add an avocado or a healthy fat or something to just, just little wee changes. Slowly, ultimately, we want to build up to like a whole food, tons of veggies, lots of healthy protein, good omega-3s and slowly get there. But it takes time and everyone does it at their own pace. Yeah, I, like, I like the fact that you talk about the little steps. The, the, I call them the little wins. If, if you can start stacking them up, man, it can make yeah. an enormous difference, can't it, to your yeah. mindset because you're getting that feeling of success and that therefore gets reinforced. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Tell, us, t- tell us about your son because you've got a, yeah. a great story about how you were able to help him with his yeah. diet and his mental health. Yeah, it was um, – I mean, this might even bring me to tears. It's quite – it's quite new. It's in the year that this has all happened. But, you know, he got to 18. Um, he left home. He was great. He finished school with ducks um, without any effort. Very, very clever. Um, and left home and um, lived in Wellington for a little bit and did a bit of a, you know, smoked a bit of marijuana um, like a lot of teenagers do. Dominantly, um, he lived on just, you know, pizzas and $5 pizzas and um, noodles. Like, that was his basis for, like, nearly a year. And um, and then he got so low and I could tell on the phone and I said, mate, I think you need to start getting home, come home. And when he got here, he had a full psychosis. And we had to hospitalise him because, yeah, sorry. Yeah. It, was, it was hard. Mm-hmm. But, um, <clears throat> Excuse me, but yeah, he. So once he got out, though, I. It was the multivitamins. He was still having sensory. Didn't want to sort of touch or believe that what was going in was good. But I was just like, mate, just please, just take this one yes. thing. Him there, and within a couple of weeks, he just switched. He just is like he just he switched and he started to get better and better. It took three. He was three months unwell. Mm. And and then he just switched, and where he is now, and how quickly he um, switched, and, and where he is, you know, he's he, he still has a um, people switch like this this fast. Mm. Yeah. He's just back to functioning completely. Just it's just brings joy to my face every time I see him. But ultimately, yeah, we started just there. He was he wasn't eating it what his thoughts were but um, we started with just and then we got some amino acids going in so proteins and amino acids and then we and then now he's you know has his, um, you know green veggies for breakfast we have veggies at lunch we, we have you know healthy proteins healthy you know omega-3 and um, I'll still take a multivitamin but 
um, yeah, he's just back to being a <laughs> back to being a normal nineteen-year-old. What an inspiring story! Uh, thank you so much for sharing it with us, and thanks for your expertise in talking to us today on Take It From Us. Uh, that is Jess Wharton from Key Nutrition in Auckland. Uh, she is a clinical nutritionist. You can reach out and, and get in touch with her uh, at Key Nutrition in Auckland. So we've had some really good discussion today about food, brain health, nutrients, and, and why it is so important that we feed our brains the good stuff. And so we are very thankful to have both Jess and previous to her, uh, Dr. Julia Rutledge, on our program today. All right, well, time now for our friendly panel with a couple of Take It From Us regulars. We've got Daryl Bishop, who is the Chief Executive of Ember, and Edith Moore, Senior Network Coordinator at Drive Consumer Direction. Guys, it's always great to have you both on our program. Edith, let's start with you. Uh, What is it that you would like to bring to our discussion today? Yeah, so um, the topic I'd like to to bring to... um forward today is about the lack of support for Pacific people with lived experience who are working or want to work in the sector. So um, all of our workforce development centres have a dedicated lived experience role. You know, um, some of them have, have a team of people with lived experience that work on different projects, except for the Pacific Workforce Development Centre. So I've been told by two of the leaders there that Pacific people don't want to be open about their lived experience, and they're using that as a reason for why they don't have um, that dedicated role there. Now, this is despite the fact that two of us were um, openly with lived experience, Pacific people, were were in the meeting with them at the time. And, um, you know, I felt really minimised when they they said that to me. And um, so the the last time they said it at um, at a whanau, I, um, I said to them that, that, you know, the majority of people with lived experience don't want to be open about it, but that doesn't mean that we don't um, put support into the sector. That doesn't mean that we're not developing this leadership and there's this set of skills um, amongst the other workforce development centres. Um, you know, they are a priority um, workforce group for us now um, that, that the Ministry is you know, telling us they really want us to support. Um, so... You know, we know that Pacific people are impacted more than ment- um, uh, impacted more by mental health and addictions than other groups, except for Māori. Pacific people are a priority population. Um, so, you know, it just confuses me why we are being supported by our own workforce development centre. And then just yesterday, I received a phone call from Tui Taurua, um, who um, Daryl will know very well, and she, amongst the, the many roles that the many hats that she um, Whereas she is the chair of the lived experience Ropu for Nuku Te Ao. And she was ringing me because she had noticed how quiet the Pacific lived experience voice was. And she wanted to um, hear some of um, my feedback about why that was and, and what we could do to strengthen it. And, you know, I honestly, I was so, I was so touched that, that she had noticed and that she wanted to support us because, you know, we know that um, our, our tangata whenua, you know, they, they're experiencing so much worse um, health outcomes than us. And so we want to, you know, be, um, you know, to support our tuakana, our tangata whenua. Um, but, you know, she turned around and, and said, you know, like, we need to support you too. You know, you're our whanau, we need to support you too. And um, she, so she wanted to set up some meetings with our um, Pacific Lived Experience um, groups that I'm a part of um, to, to see how she could do that. And so I've, I'm um, making the way... Um, clear for her to, to do that. Um, 
So, yeah, it just feels like um, the Pacific lived experience voice is constantly being shut out of, you know, decision-making processes that we're not, we're not given the, the resources that we need when we are allowed in the door to really um, to be able to, to, to make, um, you, know, our, our, you know, our opinions and our perspectives um, really um, heard in a strong way. And when they do open up the door and let us in, it feels like um, it's just like an hour or two, and then they get what they need from us, and then they just, you know, desert us, and they just toddle off and, and tick their boxes. Yes, we've we've heard from them, and um, you know, we ask them to come back and give us give us feedback about that information. Where is that going? Nothing, absolute silence. So, um, you know, it felt really great to to talk with Tui yesterday, and I hope that that's the beginning of something because you never know where these things may end. But um, yeah, so that's what I've been um, kind of mulling over in the last twenty-four well, hours. It's, it sounds like there's cause for optimism there, Edith. We can we can follow this, and you'll have to let us know yeah. if you get if you get that breakthrough that you're after. Uh, yeah. Sorely needed too. Yeah. Daryl, how are you? Yeah, well, I, was, I was listening to Edith there. I, I think there's a connection between what I was going to talk about and, and what Edith's talking about because. Uh, I mean, I think I've, I've been involved in this sector now for oh, 30 years. It makes me sound really old, but uh, basically my whole working life, I've worked in nothing but mental health and addiction. And I think currently we're going through a period of change, which is like nothing else I've ever seen. I, th- I think that, and I think COVID is distracting us from it a little bit and, and hiding it, but we're just about to see a complete restructure of the health system. We're about to see Health New Zealand, the Māori Health Authority, happen. We're seeing changes to legislation. We're going to have a completely new Mental Health Act. There's a whole review of abuse in the care system going on and and a retrospective, incredibly apologetic and mournful process of, of reviewing some of the things that have happened in state care. And I think we're about to set a new path and about to uh, build a new system and a new sector. And my concern is about who's in the room because, and and Edith's talking a little bit about that from a a Pacific perspective, because I'm concerned that we're going to go through all of this change, we're going to change legislation, we're going to change systems, and to a great degree the same people are in the room who've built the system so far. And I think we need to to really bring other voices into the conversation because we need... We talk a lot about lived experience on Take It From Us, obviously. Mm-hmm. We need that voice. We need the voice of young people. I think we need the voice of community, uh, and we need more people to talk about what wellness, well-being, mental distress responses they want as a community. And I also, in my job, I talk to heaps of entrepreneurs and innovators who are out there who are not part of the sector. They just see community. They see problems in their community, and they're coming up with innovative solutions for it, either face-to-face or digitally, and they're not part of the, the conversation. And we, and we really, really need to – we've built a sector where everybody looks away from each other, and we need to turn people to face each other because lots of people have the answers – but we only tend to listen to a, a small number of them when we're building systems. And my whole uh, drive and passion is about system change and trying to help New Zealand be a, a country that responds better to these issues because I don't think it responds well enough at the moment. And to do that, you need different people. You need different perspectives. Uh, and I think we've got a great opportunity. And I, I'm really passionate about bringing some of those people into into the conversation over the coming months uh, because... Times like this don't happen all the time. You know, I, I've worked in a system that hasn't changed for a long time and it's about to change. And we, 
people to drive that change and bring other people in the room to to drive that change. So yeah, I'm a bit yeah, I'm a bit in that space at the moment. Sure. Uh, Edith, do you think, like, Daryl's right that the COVID has just dominated our lives for the last two years, but it also feels like there is a groundswell for change right across a lot of society that now's a great opportunity to take stock and try and improve and make our society better. Do you think that some good things will come out of what Daryl's talking about, getting new people into the room, getting new ideas, new perspectives, once we can kind of park COVID, if, if we get the chance to do that? Oh, 100%. Uh, 100%. But Daryl is right. You know, we need to have these these other perspectives in the room, not just the same old people as before. Um, yeah, and that's something that, that we've been talking about as a Pacific um, uh, group, you know, that, that we need to be, you know, we need to position ourselves so that we are there to, to um, you know, contribute to this because we don't want to get left behind. Um, this is a really um, significant time in New Zealand's um, history and we need to be there. Look, I thank you both very much for joining the program. Daryl, what's your top isolation tip? Oh, have a big house so you can hide from your children, I think, <laughs> is, is, the, is the key. No, I, I, I think uh, trying to find time to do nice things. So yeah. normally in the routine of my life, we come together for dinner and that's the time we connect as a family. So trying to make sure you still do that in isolation and still sort of celebrate your, your family life and and the nice times together because it's pretty it's pretty hard being stuck in the house together all the time. Yeah. Well, I was just saying to, to Edith quietly there, seven days at home with the family is a hell of a lot better than, what was it, last year? Oh, yeah, 108 days. 108. I knew you'd have the answer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that was it. That was what we were saying all last week. At least it's not 108 days. It's not 108. Well, um, you know, to you and your family, you'll be out shortly. I'm coming out in a few days' time, so uh, we'll be all right. Edith, thanks for joining us as well.
take it from us with some classic music there from Tammy Terrell and Marvin Gaye. Uh, time to finish up very shortly, but before that, as always, every week it's time for Sheldon Shoutout. Karen, you love this segment. Who are we talking about today? Well, uh, Ken, I was reading about a chap called Jonathan Mosen. He's the CEO of WorkBridge who works with disabled people, helping to put them in touch with jobs and things. Now, he's just put out a request for blind musicians to take part in a benefit concert for blind Ukrainian refugees. I thought this was quite fascinating and something I hadn't really thought about. But um, on 16th of April, there's a group of internet radio stations around the world and they're going to be broadcasting this benefit concert And uh, Jonathan says there's some great blind performers out there and they're all donating their free talent in the hope that they'll put on a show that will encourage people to open their wallets. So they are looking for musicians and artists who'd like to be part of it. Even if you can just sing to a backing track, that's fine. The more, the merrier. So if you want to find out more about this concert for blind Ukrainian refugees, um, you go to a website called Mushroom FM and, and... that will tell you, give you all the details of what, who you need to contact. And uh, if you know someone who might like to perform for this cause, then do spread the word. Now, um, we do love this segment, Sheldon Shoutout. If you think you know somebody who is worthy of the Sheldon Shoutout, just to say thank you for their good work they've done or something they've achieved, then do let us know through our Facebook page. Take it from us. Yeah, and of course, that award uh, named after Sheldon Brown, who was 